0: Well, I hope we're okay with it being a bit uh, shorter tonight, um, but I hope it's still gonna be rich um, stuff. Well, we're gonna spend a bit, a lot of time in the Bible, so that's always good. Before we start, well, two things before we really get into it. Uh, the first thing is, I'd like to give a book recommendation. That, well, so it's this book, it's a big book, don't let that put you off, it's by G.K. Beale, it's called A New Testament Biblical Theology. I'm not recommending this as a book that you buy and read cover to cover. Um, it's, it's what, uh, let me explain what biblical theology is because you probably hear that and you just think it's theology that's good, um, which is fair enough. It sounds like it. But, so when we talk about theology, sometimes we talk about systematic theology, and that means so you ask a question like, what does the Bible say about sin? And you find every place where it talks about sin, and you put them all together and you build a doctrine. That's systematic theology, you build a system from the scriptures. Biblical theology focuses on seeing how the storyline moves through phases of fulfillment. So different things get covered and sometimes the same things get covered differently. So for instance, in a systematic theology book, you might find a chapter on the church and it just says everything about the church. Whereas biblical theology will probably start in the Old Testament with God's promises of a people and how those things developed and how the New Testament fulfills and moves those things forward. So it's, it's a different way of doing theology. I, I mean, both are necessary. I, I like biblical theology more. Th- this deep dive thus far has basically been a biblical theology of eschatology. Um, but this is the kind of book you don't need to read from cover to cover, but he just deals with loads of interesting things. Let me just grab a few things from the contents pages to, to kind of whet your appetite. So, chapter one, the biblical theological storyline of Scripture. Mm. Uh, chapter nine, the story of Christian living as the inaugurated end time new creational life. Christian living as the beginning of transformed new creation life, as a subheading. Or the story of the work of the Spirit in the inaugurated end time new creation. It, he just kind of goes through loads of things. He says, kind of, what's a biblical theology of baptism? What's a biblical theology of justification what's a the biblical theology of the people of God of the Sabbath and it just kind of goes through these all and very very well done so I was, and a lot of tonight was kind of inspired I, I worked through this a few years ago it, t- it took a long time I'm not recommending that you do the same but if you do get it read the intro and then just dip into any chapters that take your fancy really but really good emphasis on kind of the work of the Spirit in um, eschatology so I wanted to kind of give that as a recommendation but the other thing, before we get stuck into some info, I wanted to look at the quote that's at the top of the handout. So This is from a guy called Richard Gaffin. And he says this, There is a persisting tendency in historic Christianity to isolate the present work of the Spirit and eschatology from each other. Let's just take five minutes in our groups to kind of work through what do we think he means by that? Do we think he has a point? So, so, th- I suppose I'm asking the question, when I say eschatology and what the Spirit is doing now, do you think of these as separate categories or do you think that they're naturally involved? Do you think that there's been a, a, an isolation from each other? Um, yeah, so I open up, I suppose, let that open up a conversation. Um, but yeah, over to you guys for five minutes and then uh, we'll come back and work through some stuff. Well, I hope that tonight we can kind of remedy that a little bit and see that the work of the Spirit and eschatology are very much to be put together. Uh, and one of the reasons why we can say that is because of what we've already said in the past, that when we think about eschatology, we're not thinking about something off in the distant future. That is included in it, but we are thinking about how everything that God is doing through history is leading to that point. So we've looked at, for instance, Jesus' parables of... The mustard seed which starts off tiny and grows eventually into a tree the eschatology is a big tree but the sapling and the small tree and the growing stage are important too and likewise when jesus gives the spirit well there's a mustard seed there but but we'll, I'm, I'm jumping ahead so i thought we'd start before we get to the work of the spirit in um eschatology or a new creation We we let's just spend a bit of time focusing on the work of the Spirit of God in creation. So, if we could just open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and whoever gets there first, could someone just read Genesis 1, verse 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Carry on. Oh, and verse 2, sorry. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Great. So the creation account just begins as soon as god starts creating the spirit of god is there hovering over the face of the waters so what is the spirit doing here do you think what does this mean what would uh, do come back at me with this i'm not just checking questions out there for the you know rhetorically what would be diminished what would be lost in the creation account if this Seemingly just throwaway line wasn't there So in other words, what does this add to the story? What do you think? Yes, so there's a, a triune act of creation there obviously we know from the New Testament Jesus is the word God speaks Yeah Mmm Yeah that's great so the spirit is necessarily there for creation okay so it's so it's highlighting that he's yeah yeah what do you think that image of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters and the mention of the spirit here what do you think that that does to the reader in so you're reading this story and you're okay I'm gonna find out about creation and okay, so there, God is beginning and the Spirit of God is there hovering over the water. I need to know that first before I go anywhere else. Do you see how that, one of the things that happens to the reader is, immediately when you think about the Spirit of God, you're brought back to the creation story. Like if someone says to you, for instance, where's the Spirit of God in the Old Testament? I guarantee one of the first places you'd go would be Genesis 1 verse 2. So because it's just right there at the beginning, it just kind of is an immediate association. A spirit of God's involved in creation. Strangely, it doesn't really specify what the spirit of God's doing. We just need to know that he's there. I, I, quite like, I really like this quote. I think this is really helpful. This is from a theologian in America, Carl um, Claunch, who says, When Genesis 1 verse 2 reports that the spirit of God was hovering over the darkness and the waters, we are to imagine a bird hovering over a nest where new life is brought forth. Great image there. The, the the Hebrew word used for the, the deep is just kind of the, the unformed void. And there is the Spirit of God hovering over it like a bird over that you know, craggly mess of sticks. But life is going to come out of it. Oh, yes. Do go on. That's quite a rich answer. Thank you very much for that. I think that's that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you you do have that sense of anticipation. You just have this formless void, spirit of God's hovering there, and then the work begins. God speaks. Let there be light. Mm. Very good. Thank you, Jane. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Obviously, from a New Testament perspective, where we, ca- we have the clear revelation of the Trinity, you know, think of the New Testament, right? The Father sends, the Son goes, the Spirit applies. Uh, or you could say, the Father elects, the Son dies for, the Son, uh, the Spirit regenerates. There's that kind of very clear pattern of, the Father sends, the Spirit; uh, the Son achieves, the Spirit applies. That's in kind of all areas of salvation. So in this work of creation, you have the Father speaking, the Son doing, and the Spirit, I, I, almost like a ceiling, a hovering over. I, I, don't, I don't quite know how to, what what quite we do with that, but it is interesting the way that you kind of have that uh, pattern. Okay, let's let's turn into Genesis two then. So we, we kind of we're introduced to the Spirit of God v- very very early on in the Bible, as though he's there. He's an essential part of the creation. We move into Genesis two, and God brings this lump of dirt together. There's a there's a play on words here. That, uh, you might know this already, but in Hebrew the word for earth is Adamah. The word for man is Adam. Adamah, Adam. So God brings forth the Adamah. He bring, he breathes His Spirit into him, and he becomes an Adam. So the Spirit of God in Genesis two verse seven is the thing that moves this formless, or, well, formed but. Uh, unliving, unmoving, unthinking, feeling thing into a living being. is It animates this thing into life so that the spirit of God we've seen in Genesis 1 is kind of involved in the, the cosmic work of creation in shaping things in God's design to then more specifically being the, the life principle that gives life that teems through this world so uh let me just, let's just ask the questions what's the spirit of God doing here? what does this kind of bring forth in your mind what well, that picture of god breathing into something what, what does that what does that do for you yeah so we're we're we 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 do not just have the spirit of God as kind of the principle for things, but for life itself, the source of things and life. Yes. I think for this reason uh, I don't think scientists or yeah will ever be able to create life from nothing. <coughs> I mean there's a lot of work going on trying to to achieve this, isn't there? Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. Uh, I wasn't planning to say this, but you um, sparked a thought of that, Andrew. That um, yeah. There's actually well two things on this. One is whenever people talk about the kind of science religion debate, one of the things that gets kind of very subtly and quietly tucked away is whatever your beliefs are about how life developed there is a huge question mark about how life ever would even begin. So how do you move from talking about chemistry to biology? How do you go from moving to talking about just things being things, chemicals, to actually a life form there? And the the second thing which is related to that is that there are books published on how life came out. And they say, oh, we don't really know, but this is our best guess. There's a brilliant Christian um, scientist. I should say he's a scientist... A very established, successful uh, scientist, who also happens to be a Christian, a, a guy called James Tour. Um, if you've ever heard of graphene, the th- yeah, he was the scientist who invented it. So incredibly uh, gifted scientist. And he just thought, I might just check out some of this literature. I might read this stuff about how life came about. And he's done multiple lectures just showing... You don't need to know this information because it takes too long to explain, but I, as a scientist, can tell you this is all rubbish. This just doesn't make any sense. They are just getting one past you because you don't know the information. Um, So it, it is interesting. There is this huge question mark, but obviously the simplicity of the biblical story is God breathes the Spirit in, and they become alive. Yeah, which is ironically what we do with gods. We get made in the image of God and then return the favor. Mm. I've just noticed that on... Under Genesis two seven, it says the promised land was a preview of restored creation, which is where I forgot to delete a line from last time's handout. So sorry about that. That's irrelevant to tonight. But yes, God's breath is the spirit that brings life to the dust. So what we can kind of see is that the spirit of God at work in the in the original work of creation, he's an essential part. He's the kind of the mover. So Genesis one and two establish the spirit of God as central to God's work in creation. So now let's move on to God's work in recreation, or the Spirit of God at work in recreation. So I'd quite like us to turn to a passage that we've looked at multiple times. We looked at it when we talked about the resurrection. We looked at it when we talked about the restoration of Israel. But Ezekiel 36, and uh, if someone could just read maybe verse 26 and 27 for us. very much thank you so um, this is as I say part of that promise to restore them but as we saw last time we saw it this is a this is a uh, a, a promise that talks about new creation in, in a number of ways and so one of the ways that God is promising that there's going to be this work of new creation is this promise I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and make you careful to keep my laws now we, we talked before about how chapter 36, this promise of restoring you, new heart, new life, is related to the very next chapter where Ezekiel is commanded to go to a valley that's full of bones that are dry, that are long since dead, and he's commanded to prophesy. And as he does, the wind of God or the spirit of God, depending on how you translate it, same word, comes and brings these bones to life and sinew comes on them and muscle and and it says, but they were still not alive until God breathed his spirit in them and they became living beings. So these are things that have once died. It's a, it's a promise of recreation. It's not just an original creation again. So what is the work of God? What, what's, the, what's the work of the spirit of God in this passage, in this, in this prophecy? The reason why the spirit of God is being mentioned in both of these places is because just as the spirit of God was central in the work of creation, he's also God's means by by which he's going to bring about new creation. The things that have long since died, the things which look like they have no hope in them, the places which are barren, it's the spirit of God that comes and brings them back that restores them. Now It's probably worth mentioning on this point. It's important when we talk about new creation, what we're talking about biblically is not God wipes the old one away and brings the new one in. New creation, recreation is about restoring the old. So think about Jesus. He dies in a body. That body dies. And then that body comes back to life in a resurrected body. God didn't kind of say, right, Well, you, you, this body's died, so we'll move you on into a new human body where you can kind of grow up as a baby again and you know, and say, I'm back. It's not reincarnation. It's It's not destruction, and then God begins again. God restores. They're precious to him. This world's precious to him. So he's not just going to wipe it away. He's going to remove the things that are wrong in it and restore it. So those bones were recreated rather than wipe them out new ones and it's the work of the spirit of god in that any comments on that Yeah, I mean, we're going we're gonna to talk about Revelation 22 more uh, a bit later. Well, not today, but later on. I don't think that even in Revelation 22, it's, it's the picture of everything being wiped away. Because the, the, the big scene in Revelation is where John sees heaven coming down to earth. And it's, behold, the dwelling place of God is now is now amongst man. And it's that transforming thing that causes the transformation of the new creation. There's never a point where it's just like all burned up and then God says, right, I'm going to do it all again. And I think there is a, a real sense in which well, even in non-religious talk, we would uh, recognize the, the kind of discontinuity and continuity within the, the same thing and talk about it being new. Um, obviously, one example would be someone who goes through a big life change and when they say, I'm a new man. Uh, The the old me has gone, there is a sense in which, I mean, I know that's a bit of a saying to an extent, but we recognize that in a very real sense who they were has gone, and they are new, but they're still them. I mean, it's the classic, um, if you change the head of a broom and the handle of a broom, have you got a new broom or is it the same broom? But but in other situations, say if you restore your house or, you know, a car or something, you, you... Or even, I mean, I often think about the fact that, like Evangeline, this three and a half year old girl full of life who says the funniest things to me and runs around doing crazy things and look at her and I think, she is not the child I brought home from the hospital. And in another very real sense, she's exactly the child I brought home from the hospital. So you have got this kind of continuity and discontinuity in itself. So I think I realize it's a long digression. Yes. Creation, God's character. Yes, yes, but I think that illustrates it perfectly as well because even then, I mean, you are still the person that you were in a very real sense, but you're also entirely not the person that you were. I think that's the perfect illustration for how the work of new creation works. It's, it's not the creation that it once was, and yet it is exactly the creation it once was in a, in a, at the same time. Okay, um, let's look at these two passages in Isaiah. Could we turn to Isaiah 32 verse 15? If someone would read that out for us, that would be great. The great. Sorry, could you include verse 14 as well? I should have said that. Sorry, Andrew. Sorry, 14, and 15, yeah. Okay. Uh, and 16 and 17. <laughs> Why not? Great. So we've, we've seen already in Isaiah that there's lots of promises of a restored new creation and language of a kind of a picturesque place to live and deserts being turned into um, habitable places. But notice here that the, the, the hinge point of that happening is the spirit being poured out from on high. So I mean, it's interesting as well that the language, use the language of forever. It will become a wasteland forever until... In other words, I mean the, the the point there is less about the chronology and more about nothing will be able to stop it from being a wasteland except the Spirit of God being poured out. So the the, the kind of the point there is the Spirit of God again is the means of recreation, the means of God transforming this world to be what He um intended it to be. Let's just jump forward a few chapters. As I say, do feel free to interrupt me at any point if there's anything you want to say or question. But assuming there isn't, let's jump to 44 verses 3 to 5. I should also say this isn't exhaustive, obviously, as it never is, but this is just a kind of... Right, because... Could someone read chapter 44 verses 3 to 5 for us? Great, thank you, Jeff. So again, you see the same kind of thing there, the thirsty land, the dry ground, you have the Spirit being poured out again. Again, it's almost like that kind of hinge point. So, for, I mean, these are just three very short verses, but they kind of make the point that you find more generally as you work through these prophets, that the relationship between the Spirit and this new creation that God is bringing is that, The spirit being poured out is the means by which God is doing this transforming work, doing this restoration of creation, kind of a a rehash of what was there in the beginning. Uh, In the beginning, you have this formless mess that the spirit of God hovers over, and then God shapes it. And then in the story of the Bible, you have humanity that come along and turn this beautiful thing that God's made into another craggly mess, and... Again, you have the Spirit of God hovering over, ready to start the work of recreation once, God, uh, once it's poured out from on high. Okay. Now, if someone says to you, tell me a prophecy about the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. What is the one that you're almost certainly going to go for? I think I just heard someone say it. Joel. Joel 2. This is obviously a classic. And this is a really great bit of Bible. So let's turn over to my main man, Joel. I'm just going to read uh, this prophecy once I think we're mostly there Joel chapter 2 verse 28 to 32 one of the minor prophets are so very easy to skip over as you get towards the end of the Old Testament um. Um. okay let me read from Joel chapter two, twenty-eight to 32 and afterwards And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Kate, okay, what is being promised there? Yeah, so the Lord's going to come and the Spirit's going to be poured out. What do you mean by Everybody. Yes, now I'm not sure if this is a point I want to make, or more of just something I just should point out, but obviously, when we talk about everybody, we don't always mean every single person, so sometimes we mean everybody meaning every kind of person, so it on all people kind of means the least to the greatest the the servants, the men, the women the you know the children as you say, not just the chosen ones uh. You think about how this relates to a story in, uh, in Numbers, I think, but don't pounce on me if I'm wrong. I think it's in Numbers where uh, Moses appoints these other people to be judges and help him in his task of judging, and the Spirit of God comes on them and they start prophesying. And someone comes up to Moses and says, no, 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 you're supposed to be the prophet. They're, they're prophesying. And then he says, I would that all God's people prophesied. And so you have that there. You have this one person who receives the Spirit of God and prophesies. And then you have this select group of people who receive the, God, the Spirit of God and prophesy. And Moses' kind of dream is to see this happen for all of God's people. So it seems to be that that's what Joel is prophesying. They will prophesy, they will dream, they will have visions. They will have, in other words, personal, powerful encounters with God himself, not through a mediator. Well, just wait for the next point, and you'll see. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's this. Yeah, this is the this promise that God is going to yeah meet Himself with all His people. Now, this is the first time that we have the Spirit of God used in a prophecy. I think I might be wrong. I think in the Old Testament, this is the first time we have the Spirit of God promised that it doesn't have a new creational focus. I think. Okay. Now, who preaches this passage in the New Testament? Peter. Do you know where, Jeff? Day of Pentecost. Pentecost. Anyone get, want to get a Bible point? What chapter is this in? Pentecost. Acts two. Let's turn to Acts two then, and just see how this prophecy. Now, what I'd like someone to do is, I would like someone to just read verse sixteen. And verse 17 of Acts 2. So not don't read the whole Joel passage again. Just read those. Okay. And see what... Thank you, Henny. And just see if anyone can notice, what is the addition or the modification that Peter makes to Joel chapter 2? Go on. Great, thank you. So Peter speaks this, it's the day of Pentecost, so the Spirit of God has been poured out, people are starting to speak in tongues, people are starting to hear in their own languages, people are proclaiming God, people think, what's going on here, these men must be drunk, and he stands up and he says, no, we are not drunk, this is exactly what God promised would happen, but this is what it says in Joel. Did anyone see what the addition or the modification was to Joel? Joel. There you go, it's on the screen. Joel says, and afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Peter's quotation of Joel begins with, and in the last days. That's interesting, because that's not from Joel's prophecy, that's from Isaiah 2. That's from this prophecy and in the last days the mountain of the lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains it will be exalted above the hills to all nations all nations will stream to it we've looked at this passage before and the point in that passage is god is doing something in this world so that all the nations will come to god this is a new creation passage and peter is combining isaiah 2 and Joel too, and bringing them together. What does Peter kind of subtly reveal about his theology of what he thinks is going on as he combines these prophecies, or at least what do you think subtly revealed? Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. Um, I, yes, I mean, this is, this is important. Um, it makes no sense if Peter thinks that the last days are a thing way off in the future. Notice as well that earlier on in Acts chapter 1, Peter says to Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' reply is basically, well, I'm not going to say. What I will say is, go back to the city and wait. They go back, they wait, and what happens? The Spirit of God is poured out for great promise they've been waiting for. And at this point, he says, this must be the last days then. We're in it. He gets an answer to his question. Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Yes, but, essentially, is, is what Jesus' answer is. But you only, we only find out that it's yes, but when you get to Pentecost. It's funny how often um, there tends to be a kind of a, there tends to be two perspectives here. That either when when Peter says to Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Some people think, oh golly, you really have missed the boat, guys. That's not what Jesus came to do. Which is out of kilter with all the times that Jesus talks about restoring Israel. But the other misreading of it is when people kind of think, um, that's not going to be happening for thousands of years. Whatever you think about the restoration of Israel, Pentecost says, this is it. This is Israel restored. So obviously that's related to what we've talked about a few times now with the restoration of Israel and uh, how we have to kind of biblically view it as a thing that's already happened. It's not in our future. It's in our past. We are recipients of Israel's restoration in that sense. But I think the other thing that it subtly reveals is that Peter thinks that what is prophesied in Isaiah 2 is similar enough to what's prophesied in Joel 2 in terms of content that he can put them together. See what I mean? I'm trying to do this thing where I think of an analogy off the top of my head, but it's going to be terrible, so I'm not really going to try. But yes, he wouldn't he wouldn't have put these together if he didn't if he think if he thought that they spoke about two completely different topics, why would he bring them together to explain what's happening? Any comments, questions on that? Or are we good to going? Okay, so I'm going to kind of use that as a bridge now to move into the New Testament because we've seen the Old Testament promises that God is going to pour out the Spirit. It's related to the work of new creation. Through the Spirit, God is going to restore this world. And now we've kind of moved into the day of Pentecost where it's made very clear, okay, this has now begun, which I think acts as a really nice bridge to talk about some New Testament reflections on the Spirit of God. And this is where I think that first quote we talked about, about the present work of the Spirit in eschatology, where it's ironic that the same passages we go to to understand the present work of the Spirit are often about eschatology, but we don't read the eschatological undertones in them. So what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to say this table. Can you look at... Galatians 3, 2 to 9, and verse 14. You can read all of that passage if you like, 2 to 14, or even 1 to 14. I just thought, in terms of efficiency in reading, 2 to 9, and then verse 14, because verse 14 circles back to where he ends on 9. And maybe you guys do the same. So you guys both read the Galatians one. And then this table in the middle, if you read the Romans one, Romans 8, verse 18 to 23, have a good natter. Find out what's going on here, make a few notes if you like and then we're going to swap. So, I'm going to give three minutes or four minutes for the first one and then four minutes for the next one. Just talk about what you think is going on here and see if you can work out what direction I'm trying to push you in in terms of seeing the eschatological tones. If you can't, that's fine, we'll talk about it together but let's have three, four minutes and then we'll swap, and then you guys can do Romans, and you guys can do Galatians. Okay, off you go. That That is right, that one of the elements of the Abrahamic covenant is in you all, fa- all nations will be blessed. But it's not just the people that's included in the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham has also promised a land. And if you remember, when you look at the, a biblical theology of that promise to Abraham everywhere else it's assumed to be the promise of the whole world that Abraham would inherit. And and Paul puts that into words explicitly in Romans 4. He says, Abraham received the promise that he would be the inheritor of the cosmos. So, if the Abrahamic covenant is about receiving this, think about Hebrews 11 as well, Abraham received the promise by faith, he looked to the city whose architect was God, but he did not see that. So the point in Hebrews is the promise that Abraham was waiting for was the new creation. And now Paul comes along and he tells us in verse 14 that the promise to Abraham was the Holy Spirit. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through faith in Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. You go back and you read Genesis 15 or 17 or 22 where God makes a covenant with Abraham. There is no mention of the Spirit of God. So you think, has Paul been misreading his Bible? Well, no. He just understands that the Spirit of God is the agent by which God brings the new creation. So we can say the Spirit of God is promised in the Abrahamic covenant because Abraham is not going to get the new creation without the Spirit. You see what I mean? So it's it's one of those interesting things. I mean, And the rest of the passage kind of serves this point that we are being made this body together by the spirit because the spirit is what was promised in the abrahamic covenant but again you just have to go back and you say where's the mention of the spirit well it's not there which tells you something about paul's theology of what the spirit is doing everything that is promised in the new creation we can summarize under the heading of the promise of the spirit okay any comments on that one okay Romans 8, this one's obviously a bit uh, a bit less subtle. But what's the relationship between the spirit and the new creation here? We're yes, we're all groaning. I mean, just listen to what Paul, Paul says. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. So the the big point here is this creation is longing for new creation, is longing for the same transformation that we're longing for. Then listen to this in in, um, verse 22. We know... That the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. Groan inwardly. So why is the creation groaning? Because it longs to be restored. Why are we groaning? Because we long to be restored. And then he includes that little thing, and we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Think about what what first fruits means. It means we've got the preview. So this 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 passage only makes sense if Paul thinks that the fullness of the Spirit, beyond the first fruits, is all creation restored, including us. You see you see the point there? So the, the, the interesting thing about both of these passages is that they don't need to take time to argue that the Spirit of God is the means of new creation. They just assume it and then make other arguments with that as an, as an assumption. See my point? So they're clearly spending enough time in the Old Testament that they know that the Spirit of God means restoration of creation. They've gone through this thing that we call Pentecost and now they're thinking about how that new creation is going to come about now that we have the Spirit of God poured out, there's a, a very much kind of a, a thread that sews all these things together. See the point there? Okay. Should we just should we finish off with our last section, or any comments that want to be made, or anyone want to say you're wrong? Okay. The Spirit of God and the new humanity. Now, I've separated this from the Spirit of God and the work of recreation. Not because they're different things, but because they're different emphases. Hence me saving Jane's answer to press in a moment. Because the, the crown jewel on creation in Genesis is humanity. And a new creation requires a new humanity. Equally brought about by the Spirit. So I just want to read a, a, a passage to you from John's gospel. This is the end of John's gospel. Jesus is sending the people out. And it says, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he commands them to go and to preach and to forgive sins. What does that remind you of? He comes to them and he breathes on them. Genesis. Yes. Now, that word I've put in italics because this is the only time in the New Testament that that this Greek word, infusil, is used. Now, I'll give you a little guess which passage in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, uses this word. Genesis, as God breathes, as he infusil into the dust. So John has... Very specifically chosen this word. There are more natural Greek words that you would use for breathing. John has used this word almost to insist, I want you to think of Genesis 2. So I've got this quote here from GK Beale. The allusion to Genesis 2.7 suggests that Jesus is empowering his followers with spiritual empowerment to do what Adam and others had failed to do. We have now creation starting again. Humanity starting again, Adam was called to a job and he failed and now Jesus' followers are called to pick up that job and this time it cannot fail because the new, true, perfect Adam goes before us. So I think that's, that's making a big point here that God is doing Genesis 2 again. He's, he's making a new humanity in his image brought about by the Spirit. So this is where I want to click Jane's answer because it made, made the perfect point here that the Spirit of God is making us a new people, is changing us. Obviously, I'm rehashing your words for you, Jane, but we are becoming new people in him because God wants us to be a new people. He wants us to be a new humanity. So one of the things in Galatians there is you're no long, it's no longer about whether or not you're a Jew or a Gentile. The point is you are a new humanity. In fact, if you look at the way that um, Galatians ends, it's really interesting because he spent this whole letter talking about so are you, some of you are Jews, some of you are Gentiles. And he says, this is in Galatians 6, um, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. He's, he's making this point there that there is this new humanity now. Anything that used to define you, those, those old phrases you use, oh, well, I'm a Jew, oh, well, I'm a Gentile, stop using that. You are the Israel of God. New creation is what matters, not your circumcision or lack thereof. So we have a new way to walk. Uh, which we're going to return to again in just a moment. But before we get there, let's just think about the story of Pentecost for a moment. Um, this is this is unplanned, so it's not on the handout. But this is a little pop quiz. Who's the first person to receive the Spirit at Pentecost? Who? Uh, no. This is me being like, really sneaky right now. So Peter preaches and he says, Jesus received the Spirit and has now poured it out on us. So The first person to receive the Spirit of Pentecost is Jesus in heaven. And that kind of comes back to the things we talked about in the past, about the Spirit of God being this royal sign. So think about it. Whenever a priest becomes a priest, the Spirit of God comes upon them. Whenever the king becomes a king in Israel the oil of God is poured upon them to represent the spirit coming on them and now Jesus is enthroned in heaven as the king priest so he receives the spirit first thing he does is he chucks that royal priestly anointing on all his people he says now you are my kings and my priests and my queens and my priestesses I suppose why not both I think there's a, I think there's a qualitative difference between the baptism and Pentecost. I don't really know. All I know is that it says in Acts he's now received the Spirit and so he's poured it on us. So there's a sense in which Jesus receives this kind of anointing in heaven, this kind of finished work, the job is done, have the promised Holy Spirit, and then he pours it on his people. Um, but in so doing, Jesus at Pentecost is creating his new humanity and the picture there i'm pointing is to kind of remind you of two things that humanity fractures and is divided early on in the bible at babel through language through incommunicability so people go their own ways and people become their own people and now there's this event where the spirit of god comes and people from all these different nations start to understand each other and come back together as one humanity so, and this is a point I really don't think Christians emphasize often enough. The point of the gospel is not just that it makes new people, is that it makes a new people. We are a new humanity. So, I mean, I know people say this before, but some people say, like, I'm a Christian and I'm British in that order. But it's used sometimes a little bit as, like, a, a bit twee, but there's a very real sense in which our identity as Christians as the new humanity comes before everything else because we have been brought together. I mean, you think, a few years ago when you had all the kind of race riots going on, you think, imagine the kind of message that we can speak into a world that's so divided and fractured along these kind of lines where we can just kind of say, like Paul, it doesn't matter what your background is or those things. What matters is we can be a, a humanity that have more in common than the person who you think you have the most in common with because of your cultural background. I think one of the problems is Christians have often used Christianity to Christianize their own culture, if you see what I mean. So being a Christian means I'm going to be the best version of British values, rather than being a Christian means I might have really distinct out of kilter values, but hey, the believer who lives in India is more my brother than that person who looks like me and lives over the road. You see what I mean? So humanity is reunited together by the work of the Spirit at Pentecost. And so I think it's one of those things where, I mean, are we doing a good job of practically demonstrating this? The church globally? I'm not sure we are. Should we? Yes, we should. We should be doing a much better job. um, And I'm definitely going off piece now. I don't have any notes for this. But you think about in Galatians 2, Paul gets so mad that Peter would think that an adequate solution to this problem of persecution is, okay, we'll we'll keep the Jewish Christians to themselves and we'll keep the Gentile Christians to themselves. And that solves the problem. And Paul says, are you out of your mind? You have misunderstood the gospel if you think that's the solution. And yet it's amazing to me how often we do this with churches. Well, we have this church for this taste and this church for this taste. I mean, or um, you get this more in America, but like the black church and the white church. It's like, no, this this doesn't make any sense we have to be a new humanity and sometimes that means that we accept that our traditions are just that their traditions and sometimes other people need to accept that but we come together and say we want a christian church it doesn't matter who you know what kind of person you are but um, yes i digress okay this is i think really applicable and a really good place to finish The Fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5. It's probably quite a well-known passage. Can anyone say the Fruits of the Spirit off by heart? Okay. Those... So those Fruits of the Spirit are almost exactly in line with what I was just saying in terms of a new humanity has its own values. And this comes... This comes at the end of Galatians, this book where Paul is not talking about individuals, but he's talking about the church as a body. And then he gets to this point where he says, um, these are the fruits of the Spirit. Now, if he's labored the point that the Spirit of God is the thing that unites us and has brought us together, that demands that when he then talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the one thing he's not talking about is, and you as an individual must be like this. That would undermine the point he's labored. The point he's making is that we as a people must be like this. These are the kind of values. So when people say, so what kind of people is this new humanity that the Spirit's created? We say, ah, there are people marked by love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, this group, this body, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. You hear the point here, this is all corporate language and it's amazing how often we individualize this. And obviously there's an individual application because it's no good saying, well, I don't need to have peace and patience and kindness as long as the, the most of us do. That, that's not the point I'm trying to make. I suppose the point I'm more trying to make is these are all in the context of, hey, we as a body should be like this. So then very naturally Paul goes into some body stuff. So um, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person. That's you in the plural, you guys. But watch yourselves so that, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. You see that, this, this always has a corporate emphasis. So we, the one thing we can't do is think of the Christian life as these things that I believe about God and also on Sunday I gather with people who happen to think the same things. This is the manifesto of us as a people. This is us. This is us as the Spirit's new creation. So these are the markers of the new humanity. And with that, I will finish. Although we're going to do a quick recap. But if anyone has any questions, we'll do those first, or comments, or praise for God. Great. Well, let me do a recap. So just as the Spirit of God was active and involved in the work of creation, so too he is at work in the work of recreation. Old Testament prophecy regularly ties the outpouring of the Spirit to God's plans for restoration. Peter's sermon at Pentecost ties these promises to the believer's experience, as in what they have experienced at Pentecost. The New Testament elsewhere develops similar themes, such as that the Spirit is creating this new humanity. So if we just end by just a return to that quote that we saw at the beginning, there is a persisting tendency... In historic Christianity to isolate the present work of the spirit and eschatology from each other. I hope we can see that, yes, that is definitely a problem if we do that. If the spirit of God is at work in us now, it's because the spirit of God is at work to build a new creation of which we are just the crowning jewel. Great, let's finish. To do that, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the promises that you gave your prophets, that you would pour out your spirit from on high, that you would restore this world. And our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were obedient to the Father and that you did receive the spirit and that you poured it out on us. And now, Spirit of God, we ask you to be more at work in us, creating us as the body, as uh, the witness of the new humanity to show a world that needs hope, a world that is overcome by division, by boundaries, by tribes. And Lord, I pray that we would be a shining light showing what God can do and is doing through his people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining me.